0: this podcast is brought to you by trend trend is a micro influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers learn more join our network or start an influencer campaign at trend.io hey everybody welcome back to the dtc pod i'm your host jay and i'm joined with the ceo of trend my co-host ramon we have an awesome guest with us today orchid Bertelson, who's the head of digital strategy and innovation at Nestle. Super excited to have Orchid on the podcast today. She's going to be talking about great customer experiences from a large brand perspective. And we're also going to be covering a lot of stuff on innovation. Excited to have you on the podcast over here, Orchid. And before we get started, I'll pass the mic over to you. If you want to give a quick little intro about yourself, tell us a little bit more about you and what you do.
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me on. It's really uh, great to be here with you guys. So in my role as uh, head of consumer experience strategy and innovation, we rebranded recently because, you know, when you call something digital, we're kind of in a world, in a position where everything is digital. It's kind of like when social media launched and it was like new media or like media 2.0 and now it's just media. I think we're we're definitely going through something similar um, with digital marketing and digital strategy. But yeah, I mean, I've been at Nestle USA for about six years now. My portfolio includes about 40 brands. Um, So it ranges anywhere from Toll House, DiGiorno, Coffee Mate, Pellegrino, Perrier. It includes our Starbucks business. Um, So we acquired their grocery business a few years back. It includes recent acquisitions like Chameleon Cold Brew, Freshly. Um, So it really runs the gamut. I like to call it the human adult food portfolio just because Nestle also owns Purina as well as Gerber, and so those are not in my scope. So it usually is is a little more um, detailed, I think, or helps people think about what I'm responsible for. And so when it comes to strategy, consumer experience, strategy, and innovation, I've got two halves of the team. One half is focused on owned experiences and owned communications channels. So you've got our brand.coms direct-to-consumer sites, merch stores, consumer marketing data strategy, CRM, loyalty, that's all on one half of my team. And the other half is focused on innovation. So innovation divided into new business models and emerging technology. So new business models are new business models um, for us. So D to C falls under that. For innovation, emerging technologies, it's largely focused on artificial intelligence and automation.
0: Awesome. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of responsibilities and a lot of different things that you work on. So I'm sure we'll probably unpack all of that on this podcast over here. But before we talk about all of those different things, I kind of wanted to dive in a little bit more to your background, because I know you used to work at an agency before working at Nestle. Is there anything that you've kind of carried over from there that uh, you've used to kind of... Uh, lead the strategy on your team, or even how you think about innovation over there as well?
1: There are so many things that I have carried over from my creative agency days. And even before creative agency side, I was in management consulting. Um, So the consulting firm I was at was focused on change management and corporate turnarounds. So I've definitely carried a lot of those things with me as I, um, you know, in in my day-to-day at Nestle and also thinking strategically. So I'll kind of start with the creative agency side. One of the sayings we had was that I use almost every day, definitely every week still is that trust breeds bravery. And when you're in innovation, when you are also at an agency, you know, you're asking a lot of your clients and your customers to take a leap of faith with you, especially as you're looking ahead of the curve, you're looking around corners and they will not do that. They will not go on that journey with you if they don't trust that you will be as respectful and protective of the brand as they are. So trust breeds bravery, especially as it pertains to innovation and being the first in something, whether it's building a digital human for Toll House like we did earlier this year, or you know launching a campaign um, on Twitch with Hot Pockets. Like, you know the brand teams will only come on board with you if they trust you. And so it's very relationship-based in that way. Another thing that I've brought over from the creative agency is that we only saw about 5% of the business. So when you talk about advertising, it is such a small piece of what brand marketers are responsible for, especially as they tend to approach things as more of a general management Perspective. So they are running their own business. That means making sure that uh, the product is getting to shelf. It means that they're working on packaging. It means that you know, they're working on trade and promotions and retailer um, relationships in store. They're they're making sure that when things are expired, those are being you know moved out of the system. And so that's why communications and advertising is such a small part. And so I think that there are a couple of things. Make sure you have a really great agency-client relationship. And one of them, and this is for the client teams, is that your agency is only going to be as good as you let them. So I believe that context is really important, that when I share a problem with someone or an objective for a project, I try to give them as much context as possible, almost to the point of saying, hey, I'm going to give you a lot of information, Tell me, give me feedback on what is useful to you and what is not useful to you. Because a lot of times people are so heads down and, you know, as you kind of see the pendulum swing from AORs to specialist agencies, that they only see a really small piece of the pie. And we know that when it comes to planning digital campaigns or marketing campaigns, everything is connected and everything is dependent on each other when you're building out an ecosystem. So that's definitely another thing that I've really tried to live from the agency days is that- you know, a good relationship takes two willing partners. And so for clients to be good partners, like we have to be able to give um, access to our agencies, to how our business is doing, to what our objectives are, to help them prioritize.
2: There's something there that caught my attention that's very insightful, which is, you know, how digital is now just one word. It's almost the same with commerce too, with e-commerce taking over. So I'm curious on how you guys, and you know, from an agency side and from Nestle's side, How do you carry that message consistently throughout all the commerce channels that they are? And how is that different, you know, from an agency level to the brand directly to its own customers?
1: I think that's a great question around commerce being everywhere and how do you plan for that? When it used to be just the sales team's responsibility and now it's a bit of everyone's responsibility just because of the rise of e-commerce And I think social commerce is a huge and important piece of that, of effectively collapsing the funnel. So marketing fundamentally has shifted and it's shifted for a long time. I think more specifically around power dynamics is that marketing went from push messaging, the Mad Men days, where what people thought of your brand was what you told them to think. And through the rise of the internet, Um, which is something that, you know, I first came across the internet when I was 10, logging into Prodigy for the first time. So we can certainly talk about that. But the internet has become this great democratizer in a lot of ways. And so the power dynamic has shifted and it's shifting even more with Gen Z. um, And what I personally think is a very positive way is that the consumers now get to tell us very vocally what they're looking for and what is useful to them. Because all marketing and all CPG is, is creating solutions to solve consumer problems. And consumers will reward you by giving you money (laughs) for your product, for your solution. So when everything is an opportunity, so when that like, so basically consumers have more power than ever before, you know, and then, you know, even that is like where they spend their time in digital channels, you can go from awareness to conversion in an instant. And you can do that through your Instagram stores. You can do that through a Facebook ad. You can, I mean, I don't know how many people do it through Twitter. Um, I use Twitter mostly for networking than commerce. But, you know, that means that every opportunity where someone is seeing your brand for either the first time or the 10th time is an opportunity to convert them. And so that is where I think consumer journey mapping is really important. And when you think in ecosystems and just thinking in systems of when is someone most open to purchasing something? And there's also this idea of no dead ends. Like, how many times have we looked at, you know, maybe banner ads or social media ads? I mean, years ago, where there was no call to action and the, the client would just say, I just want people to be aware. I'm like, cool, cool, cool. Most people will be aware. But what about the people who are aware and want to go ahead and buy? You've got to give them a way to interact more deeply with the brand if they choose. You know, no easy answer, but I do think that commerce is everybody's job now and that more important than ever before, we need to break down some of the siloed structure and nature of large companies to all work together centered around the consumer. And so consumer journey mapping is a way to do that.
2: Yeah. And it's crazy how it's still so early.
1: We are in very, very early innings on e-commerce, on influencers and the creator economy Definitely on blockchain and NFT and Web3. I mean, this is only the beginning. And so I do think that early innings of things, I think in this fast paced change, there is a fight or flight reflex that happens within individuals, within teams, within organizations. And I think, and this leads to innovation and this idea of change is that you could fight it, you're probably gonna lose, or you could embrace it and really think about how you enable that change. And how you do it on behalf of the consumer and on behalf of your brands engaging with your consumers. Because there's a quote, and it's been attributed to quite a few folks, but that it's the ne- change has never come as fast as it is today, but it's never going to be as slow. And we're seeing this, right? We're seeing the hypes like technologies go through the hype cycle faster than ever before. NFTs had, you know, it, it, there was a spike in what it was March of this year. And now they're already, you know, starting to really develop in the space beyond just a couple of brands saying that they did something.
2: I wanted to touch on that super quick, because if we bring up the word NFTs, uh, you know, I think it's impossible to skimp over at this point. I'm very curious if Nestle is, you know, is Nestle thinking about Web3? Is it, you know, it's definitely catching everyone's attention. It's billion dollar market cap already. So uh, I'm curious on, is that something that's You know, something to start paying attention to as a brand.
1: Yeah, so I will speak generally and use NFTs as an example of how we approach emerging technology and new things. So you get accused of the bright and shiny syndrome, especially when it comes to innovation. And what we do is we use a couple of different models to evaluate if that is something that we pursue and if it is, which brand we do it with. Um, And then what we intend to learn out of it. So with innovation, I think there's a common misconception that ideation equals innovation. When ideation and like a bunch of people sitting around in beanbag chairs putting post-its on walls is really only one part of the process. And so for there to be sustainable and meaningful innovation within an organization, there has to be around a lot of process around it. Because what you're trying to do is run a bunch of different ideas through the paces to see which hits. And if you use different parameters every time, like you're not going to understand when something is different and feels different. So that's one, is that we have a strict process. You know, a couple of tools I already mentioned, one, which is the Gartner hype cycle, um, which I love because, you know, when things are peak hype cycle is where everybody is very passionate about the vision or can see the vision of something. But the gap between vision and reality is the widest. And so I tend to not look at things or pursue things at the peak of the hype cycle for a variety of reasons. One is that it's peak hype, but the maturity of the technology is pretty low. Um, So we'll usually do a white paper or some kind of perspective on, all right, you know, NFTs are peaking. What does this mean? What should you do? What are we going to keep track of? What are we not going to do? And then usually I think the huge opportunity to actually test something is in the trough of disillusionment. And people who know me, I tend to be very cynical. I think, you know, in innovation, only the paranoid survive sort of thing. But in the trough of disillusionment is when I think the perception and the reality of the technology is actually the closest together. And then after that, you kind of, you know, approach the um, larger adoption, which is about 30% of the market. And, you know, the challenge to here, when it comes to emerging tech is understanding the maturity of your own industry, because, food and beverage and grocery tends to lag when it comes to emerging technology because of consumer shopping behavior. So there are industries and countries and entire geographies that are much more advanced that we look at as first movers. So beauty and fashion is a great example, right? Like the Gucci app is amazing. Like I read Gucci all the time, but like, you know, um, in name, I'm not wearing it, but (laughs) you know, what they've been able to do is, you know, they test out augmented reality in a way that makes sense for their category. And so for a lot of brands, I would challenge you, okay, well, just because this technology is interesting, is it important for you in your category? And ultimately, you know, and I should have started with this, but with innovation and emerging tech, you start with the why. Why are you doing this? Because the technology is just a solution. And so if you go technology first, and we've all heard this brief of like, I want to do something in AR. We should do in something in AR. You know, like why? What is the problem you are trying to solve? Let's articulate the problem, and then let's evaluate whether or not AR is a good solution. And if not, what are some other solutions that are in play?
0: Yeah, there's definitely a lot to unpack over there. I was just listening um, and kind of like learning some of the things that you were mentioning over there. So I wanted to actually ask, you know, talking about. I know you kind of gave like a framework for how you think about when to push forward on an idea and when is maybe like the right time or some factors to consider over there. What are some of the success metrics that you look at at some of these emerging technologies? I know it might be different for each one, um, but I was wondering if you could like provide some examples over there as well.
1: So I get asked about KPIs and performance metrics for innovation all the time because it's inherently hard to measure. Because what you're trying to do is you go through an exercise of de-risking, which means, especially in large organizations that are pretty um, averse to risk, which is not a bad thing, really. But what you're trying to do is you take a whole host of questions as well as hypotheses you're trying to disprove and then come up with little gates to say, all right, well, we answer this question. like This is what we think is going to happen, and then let's see if that's true. So with KPIs, most generally, especially when you're in organizations that are very focused on ROI, I try to change that narrative a bit so that it's not return on investment, but it's return on insights. So innovation is just charting unnavigated waters. Like that is what it is. And so you can have, you know, your best idea of what's going to happen, but you also have to have enough flexibility to pivot or to change course or to, you know, adjust based on your learnings. So that's why our KPI is largely return on insights. So I'll use an example. I spoke earlier about our digital human for Toll House. She's our cookie coach and her name is Ruth, um, who's named after the founder of Toll House, Ruth Wakefield, um, who was an entrepreneur in her own time and she invented the chocolate chip cookie. You know, when I talk about focusing in on a problem, the problem we were trying to address was that consumers were calling into our customer service line um with a bevy of questions about recipe troubleshooting because that signature recipe is on the back of our packaging for all of our morsels. And the problem was that when consumers would call in, they would have a very inconsistent experience based on the human they were talking to. So if the human you were talking to was an avid baker, you would have an amazing experience because they knew that, you know, to replace baking soda with baking powder, this is the right ratio and this is how it's going to change your recipe. Now, If you had someone who really only orders cookie delivery, which you can also do, um, we set up a virtual kitchen um, for cookie delivery in the D.C. area, you know, then you would have a poor experience because they would have no idea what you need to do to change that recipe to suit your personal preferences or what's in your pantry. So the challenge then was how might we use technology to create an excellent and consistent consumer experience in a highly um, emotional problem because you're usually baking something to give to someone. And so if you fail at that, you're like, okay, well now I don't have anything to give them and like, oh, I'm a failure. (laughs) So that doesn't feel very good. So that's why we went to the digital human as something that was high empathy. It was novel enough, really, that wasn't just a chatbot, but it was novel enough to differentiate the brand from a highly commoditized category. So people have asked me, well, how do you know you're successful? And so they're like, is it driving purchase or repurchase? I was like, well, I just want to know that she sparks joy because if you think you put yourself in the shoes of the consumer, they're standing in aisle or maybe they're you know on Amazon, you know searched chocolate chips and they're looking at all these options, they want to feel like they made the right decision. So they buy Toll House, they are able to activate Cookie Coach, they have fun with it And they're like, I made the right decision. I'm going to make that decision again. That effectively drives repeat purchase. And so what we saw, we had a lot of hypotheses going into it. Like, you know, if this is a customer service deflection, what are like the number of calls or percentage of calls we can deflect into this service away from phone calls? And that ended up not being the right metric because people call customer service when they have a problem, but they activate cookie coach before they have the problem. And so that hypothesis just didn't work out. And so what we actually saw was like, it was actually about average session length. So on average, consumers are spending between nine and 13 minutes in the platform with Cookie Coach engaging with her. And as a brand, if you have an owned channel where people are engaging with you from nine to 13 minutes in this day and age, that's a huge plus. And so that's an example of, hey, we were pretty loose about what we expected to happen, We had some hypotheses that we ended up like, you know, disproving. And then we actually found this nugget of saying like, all right, well, average session length is a more accurate measure of whether or not people like her. And then we look at revisits as a, hey, is she providing, She provide value once, is she providing continual value?
0: Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trends exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more, all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D dot I-O slash podcast. And look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. Yeah, that's a really great example over there. And it's really interesting about how you went about finding the right metrics over there. In terms of technology, I know we've talked about a lot of different things and you've experimented in a lot of different areas as well, like AI, VR, AR, all of those things. What is the technology that you're kind of most excited about, especially in the innovation space and you think has the most potential, especially in CPG?
1: I am the most excited about the metaverse, which now I know is everywhere. But, and this kind of goes back to my history as well. So the first time that I went online through dial up was when I was 10. So I turned 40 next year. So this was what, 1992. And I'm a competitive horseback rider. And so at the time I created this forum on Prodigy as a 10 year old, which now looking back is super sus. But it was a forum for horse lovers and we would like talk about it and our handles were like names of famous racehorses and like it was a thing.
2: Now it's called Zed Run. Have you heard of that?
1: Yeah, I know. You had it. Um, Just bad timing. I, I pioneered it. I actually also published a zine using my dad's printer at work and I actually mailed out stuff to the people on the board that I had met. Again, now as a 10, like looking back and I have a four-year-old, I was like, that's pretty sus for like a 10-year-old to be doing, but whatever, it was 92. I think what was really exciting about it was that I was a very, very sheltered kid because my I'm first generation. My parents immigrated over here from Taiwan and they just, you know, I wasn't allowed to have sleepovers with friends or, you know, they didn't really understand like going to a friend's house after school. So that was how I had a community and that's how I found people that, you know, had shared interests. And so there's a part of me that has always been living this other life online or connecting with others online. And I do think that with the conversation about the metaverse and, you know, obviously the tech founders have all read like, you know, Ready Player One and however they're inspired by it. But I also have this T-shirt that I bought years ago that says, online, I just feel stronger. (laughs) So I do think just this idea of how do you live your life? Is it digital? Is it physical? Is it blended? This idea of ownership, right? Like, am I owning a tangible good or am I owning a non-fungible token, right? Like, what does ownership and property mean in this day and age? And so this idea that you can kind of shed... You know, how you are perceived in the physical world and live this ideal version of yourself online and build a whole life around it, I think is really cool and inspiring and exciting. And, you know, to bring it back to CPG is like, well, you know, how do we support people in this digital world, in this, you know, I bet, I guess, basically second life? And so, how do we do that in a very um, authentic way? that isn't just like shilling products on screen or, you know, a dystopian, well, I was gonna say a dystopian version of WALL-E, but I think WALL-E is a dystopian version of WALL-E. So.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's really interesting, especially like thinking about how CPG brands are kind of like getting more into these digital spaces with like digital products. And I know you talked about the Toll House example, as well. What do you kind of see for the future of brands, especially when it comes to digital products? Like, what are some things that you're kind of looking at today, even five years out from now in the CPG space when it comes to like, digital products?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of what CPG, we've kind of been dancing around this space for a long time between when blockchain first came on the scene for CPG a couple years ago, and everybody was talking about supply chain transparency, and you can't tie a physical good, um, you know, onto the blockchain at this point in a way that you know is tamper-proof. But I think you know we've kind of danced around that. You've seen a lot of CPG brands launch merch stores. Um, you know, we've done that as well for Hot Pockets, Stouffer's. Um, I think Dijonno is coming online soon, if not online already. And so there's already been this idea of just because you are a ready to drink brand doesn't mean that that is the only space you're going to occupy because consumers also expect more out of brand. And I think there's always been this like weird tension between, uh, do you remember years ago where it's like there was that legal ruling? It's like our corporation's people. (laughs) You're kind of, the same thing is happening with brand. And I think that that's something that a lot of brands struggle with, which is you have a situation where consumers are expecting more out of brands and brands are feeling that tension as well, is that not only are you going to provide a good product, but you also have a mission and value system that aligns with, you know, your community. And so, you know, you see these variations of brands that are a single category or a certain product trying to expand above and beyond what they are and kind of come to life online in a way where sometimes they mess up and sometimes they find some magic. And so I think when it comes to the metaverse and towing into this digital world, we have to think beyond product placement Uh, We have to think beyond, you know, having a bottle of like, let's say, coffee made like, you know, on Animal Crossing, because I think a lot of those instances, you have a very clear business problem. And as the brand owner, as the company owner, you are very, very familiar with what the challenges of your business are. The consumer cares about their problem and how are you going to solve their problem so I do think if you take a very a critical lens at a lot of the brand activations in the space, the ones that hit the mark are solving a consumer problem. The ones that miss the mark, it's usually because you can identify the business problem that we're trying to solve, whether it's increased penetration, whether it's you know increased repurchase, like whatever it is, but there's usually that disconnect there. So I think a, a long way of saying, I think a successful brand that is going to play in the digital space, knows their consumer extremely well, but also knows most importantly, like the parameters and the confines of their brand, what is gonna be on character and in line with what they believe in and what they've been saying and been doing versus what is out of character. And that's when you get into like the hello fellow kids territory,
2: you know? Yeah, this is super fascinating because one of our thesis, a trend is that tomorrow the individual will be the corporation. And you could also argue, well, the opposite could be true for brands. The brands could know their customers so well that they also have these characters that do blend in with who their consumers are. And you're already seeing that with the toll house you know, representative who's a digital individual that could attend a cookout in Metaverse, something like that. So it's super interesting
0: to see that come together. Yeah. And I'm sure it probably also provides a lot of flexibility for the brand as well, right? It's not just about your physical product and what you have in the store, but it kind of, especially with all these different ways, like, you know, VR, AR, um, NFTs, all of that good stuff over there, it kind of enables the brand as well to branch out from just their physical product and potentially even have more market penetration through other sources, right?
1: Absolutely. Because with brands, if you're just a product on a shelf, it tends to be very limiting, whether it's a physical shelf or the digital shelf. And if you are, we're all trying to stay top of mind but it's not just within our category. It's literally with everything else because your budget is finite. So if you want to buy that expensive, you know, CBD drink, it means that you're not buying something else. Right. Yeah. And so for us to stay top of mind, it's harder than ever before. And so this idea of brands pushing into other places to have relevancy, I think is more important than ever before because I, and I think that's why people or brands are trying to say I am more than a product I am a lifestyle or I am an ethos or whatever it is because you've seen the Instagram pages of products that only talk about their product they're really boring and there is no reason for someone to engage with it time and again unless you are part of the executive team and you want to see what your brand is up to. By allowing brands to play in new spaces, by becoming multidimensional, it makes it more interesting. It makes it for yourself and for the consumer. I think that it is something that everyone is trying to do, but very few have cracked the code on it. And if you do, I think that will put you strategically ahead of other products as you see a further commoditization of categories, right? So the unspoken thing about e-commerce is that it is not good for the brand. I'm going to tell you why. Because with e-commerce, especially with retailer search, consumers are searching category terms. And so if your brand is synonymous with a category like Kleenex or Advil, then you are set. People will search for that. But if you're not, and there's a lot of competition there, people could be searching for frozen pizza rather than DiGiorno. And so what that opens it up is it opens it up to private label really coming in because now people aren't brand loyal. They're trying to find something and then they'll look through the list of options and then select it based on, you know, what's top of mind or what's relevant to them. So I think, you know, when you have a playing field where new food and beverage and new brands in general are just popping up every day because of Shopify, because of flexible manufacturing and co-manufacturing getting more sophisticated. You know, what you're trying to do is break through the noise, but all e-commerce doing is further commoditizing categories. So you have a lot of these tensions that are coming together. And so I think that's where D2C brands, you know, you have to strategically think about where you're trying to get to And then build a plan that is differentiated enough, but right for your consumer to get you there. So the last thing I'll say about that is that I talk to a lot of startups. I talk to a lot of founders. I love entrepreneurs. My father was one. My husband was one. And I asked them time and again, when they're trying to tell me about their business, I asked them, what are you trying to accomplish? Right. And sometimes it comes out as like, what is your exit? And some people say, you know, I want to just run something that I really love, and I want it to be able to provide for me and my family and and a few other folks. Great. Some people say, I want to sell to a large company like Nestle. I was like, okay. Some people want to IPO. And so it's really important to think about what your ideal end state is, because if you gave me one of those three outcomes is why you're building the business, I would come up with very different strategies to build each one. And I think it's really surprising that a lot of founders have no idea, right? Because a lot of them are, I think, just like so focused on delighting consumers, which is a really great thing to do. But for you to be able to continue to support consumers, to delight them, it means you also have to have a viable business to do that. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to be there to delight them. So that's one thing that I have um, that is part of every conversation I have, um, depending on the startup and the founder I'm talking to.
0: Yeah, and that's a great point about kind of understanding what your end goal should be um, and letting it kind of drive your strategy. Well, Orchid, I know we're coming towards the end of the podcast over here. It's been great having you on the podcast. There was a lot to unpack over there, a lot of stuff that I know Ramon and I probably have to spend some time researching on, and we might have to bring you back on and and some other guests as well that are doing a lot of innovative strategies and working actively in those areas. But before we wrap up over here, I'm going to pass the mic over to you one last time, what's next for Nestle? What are you, what are you working on? And then uh, if you want to give a chance for people to connect with you as well, or, or learn more about some of the stuff that you're doing, feel free to share that as well.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, we've got a lot of things going on. But the common theme is that it's in order to improve the consumer experience, and to differentiate on experience, right in a highly commoditized world. So for us, you know it's a focus on our owned experiences, owned channels. I think with automation, there is an opportunity both on the consumer facing side, like with our cookie coach. Um, you know obviously she's powered by conversational AI. But there's also an opportunity to streamline and automate back-end processes to, you know, enable humans to do what they do best, which is strategic and creative thinking. So I uh, can't speak specifically on a lot of it, um, but you'll, you'll know when you see it. And people can reach me uh, by Twitter, which is a blessing and a curse. Uh, but you can reach me at Orchid Bertelson, all one word.
0: All right. Awesome. Well, Orchid, thanks again for joining us on the podcast. It's been a blast a lot of very new topics. I think um, you know uh, we typically talk a lot about like ads and organic social and things like that. So it was awesome to have you on here to, to talk about some things that we don't usually cover. So thanks again for, for joining us. Um, I know I learned a lot. I'm sure Ramon did as well and our audience did also. If you enjoyed this episode of the DTC pod, feel free to drop a quick rating and subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time. Thanks again for joining us, Orchid.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.